Welcome to the MacGuffin. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. You can check out our website, themacguffinmen.com, to keep up on our most recent episodes. Uh, last time we talked about No, the Pablo Lorraine film. Uh, before that was Unbreakable. Before that, on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nomadland, and Bad Trip. So yeah, those are all on themacguffinmen.com. Check them out. All right, James. Here yes. we are. Um, not the first Stanley Kubrick movie we have talked about uh, on this podcast, but uh, today's podcast topic is Paths of Glory. And at this point in Kubrick's, I mean, we don't really need to introduce Stanley Kubrick because he's Stanley Kubrick. And if you're listening to this podcast, you know who he is. Um, but this is early on in his career. It's bef- kind of before he becomes the Kubrick that we sort of picture, which is probably begins with 2001. Um, he's coming off of The Killing, which is a movie a movie that we've talked about and um he's going to world war one and this is a movie about uh trench warfare and or middle management and or uh just sending people to the slaughter um for your own benefit and paths of glory is very interesting because at least to me because um when you think of a 1950s war movie, you think you don't think of a movie with a structure like this. And I think that's the thing that's the most fascinating about this movie to me is that it's a series of meetings uh, and then a battle and then another series of meetings, you know, and that's basically the whole movie. <laughs> yeah. And I find it very interesting. And there are elements about it that are very 1950s. And then like so many legacy filmmakers um, have the tendency to do, there are so many elements of it that feel ahead of their time. And um and yeah, it's just a really fascinating movie, and uh, also interesting to note that Stanley Kubrick was 29 when he makes this makes this movie, <laughs> which is historically a pretty young age for a filmmaker to make a, a really strong, really compelling war movie, specifically. Yeah. yeah, and reading some reviews, you know, some people say that this is the beginning of really sort of quintessential Kubrick, but as we talked about in the Killing podcast, there's a lot of love and critical regard for that movie too um yeah and and we see bits and pieces of you know the great kubrick that we'd see later too um yeah but it's you're right because it is all over the place it's world war one you know definitely the less uh filmed war you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there's there's just so much more media about world war two um so that's an interesting case and it's it's black and white and it certainly doesn't need to be you know that was that was a choice that he made to make it a bit more um representative of the time period and the newsreel footage that would be coming back around that time uh yeah specifically newsreel footage because if you've seen footage of world war one you've seen it in black and white (laughs) yeah exactly and yeah i I think you're right to say that it's you know it it is very 1950s but also kind of forward looking and you know i mentioned that it's (laughs) unnecessarily black and white and about a war from 40 years before this is made um so it's backwards looking in that sense and vietnam's not really taken off the korean wars just sort of finished and it's it's interesting because this was a it's a humphrey cobb novel from 53 and it's my understanding is that this is a project that got passed around a lot and no one really wanted to make this movie mm-hmm. and from its reception it was <laughs> received sort of exactly the way people were worried about it receiving or the people who uh didn't want to make it were worried about it re- being received <laughs> yeah um 
<laughs> and it sounds like a movie that uh, Kirk Douglas really wanted to make and that obviously Kubrick wanted to make. So uh, it's, yeah, it's it's got a lot. And I think you're right about the structure because there's not a ton of war in this war movie. Um, we get moments that seem like they're pulled straight out of a courtroom drama, but it's not really a courtroom drama movie. There's not a, enough of those, but um, of those of those kinds of sequences. But we get some of those long sequences that we come to know and love from Kubrick as well. And yeah, I, I, I think you're right that it's just interesting because it's kind of hard to to pin it down exactly what it is. But obviously it has those those moments and an ending that really stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that um, we should note and something that I feel like we note basically every time we're talking about a legacy filmmaker from before we were born, like we weren't watching a lot of movies in 1957 because we didn't exist. Right. If we went to. So it's harder to see what what is really ahead of its or sorry, what would seem very new um, if we're not going to the movies every week in 1957. You know, a lot of these legacy filmmakers, the newness has to it the newness like seeing the newness relies on you also watching a lot of contemporary films right like the the pacing of mank felt new because we watch a lot of movies that were released in 2020 you know um whereas there are lots of things in paths of glory that i can point to and be like that seems pretty advanced for 1957 i think some of the low angle close-ups specifically of kirk douglas look like shots in phantom thread you know like they're so yeah you don't want to waste a jawline like that (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) um but uh but just the the way that they're lit and certain and the way that they're framed and um a lot of that just looks like the crispest possible version of 1957 filmmaking and and i think that there's a lot but that said i think there would be a lot of things that are um that were probably very new in in the year that this movie was released uh that just pass us over because they've just been adopted by basically everybody you know and um and i just think that's very important to note uh when talking about something this old and something that you know we weren't alive when it was released you know yeah no absolutely and i think one thing that i i just i love 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 about this movie is that the execution goes through um Mm -hmm. it just it it seems like you know, you expect Kirk Douglas to be the hero. You expect these guys who we've seen be very emotionally vulnerable, who we feel for, who, um, you know, we feel for because of the fact that they were soldiers in this horrible, but this extremely difficult attack. Um, <laughs> World War One, like most wars, seems like an awful war to be in. Mm-hmm. The trench warfare um, is just, you know, noted as being particularly excruciating and, 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 and tough on the soldiers. And, we see how they're talked about or how they're talked to that, you know, there's no such thing as shell shock and all these kind of horrible things where mental illness was, or mental, um, mental health is just in a much, much different place. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at that time, especially in the military. So we, we kind of get the sense that these people are going to get saved at the last minute, but Kirk Douglas, Colonel Dax is there. There, there doesn't seem to be any mechanism with, <laughs> through which these people are going to be saved. But just from watching movies like this, you expect someone to come in in the last minute, and and they don't. And yeah. to me, that felt like something you weren't going to get out of a movie from the fifties. Um, and so I thought that that was something that felt out of place. And then after watching this the first time and reading about it, 
this movie was so out of place. Like, they didn't show this movie for a long time in many countries. <laughs> yeah. it, it, you know, this wasn't just like, oh, there's a curveball uh, court-martial execution in the middle of this. This was not acceptable to the government of many um, Western countries at the mm-hmm. time. So I, I think you're right. I mean, to talk about the some of the shots and some of the pacing and the structure of it, it's definitely an exemption in that way. But just to look at it through that geopolitical realm, um, it's, France didn't want to show it because of the way it made them look. <laughs> Germany didn't want to show it because they didn't, you know, they're very recently uh, kind of getting on better terms with France, so they didn't want to uh, air this in, or play this in their country to have the French government, uh, you know, upset at them and raise the ire of the French government and military. So just how loaded this was and what a charged time this was for um, politics mm-hmm. hand in hand with it being uh, exceptional in a bunch of filmmaking ways. It really is quite uh, quite an anomaly and just, and just quite a quite a text to come out of this time period. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that with um, movies, you know, it, within our lifetime, before our lifetime, like that, a lot of times the thing that drives those movies to actually get made is because somebody famous enough uh, decides that they want to make them and that they want to make them, make them this way, you know? And you look at Kirk Douglas's career and you, you see a lot of... Um, elements of that and what Robert Redford would do later on or Brad Pitt. And you see a lot of the, um, a lot of, uh, you still see a lot of that with Tom Cruise, you know, how everybody, how every woman that talks to Tom Cruise in a movie has to fall in love with him. Like you kind of get that feeling with some elements of Kirk Douglas. Like you're going to get, um, a little bit of vanity about how his character is portrayed and you're going to see him shirtless and all of these things. Um, but he's also the person who is, able to say no this is the ending we keep this ending it's brad pitt saying no the the head is in the box you know like it's somebody um somebody who's super famous with good taste and that is able to sort of protect this movie and get this movie made in uh, a world that would not be receptive to what the movie specifically is saying you know and um and i think that's really important to note early on because kirk douglas is so important in this movie getting made yeah, and I both as an as an actor and as a producer. Yeah, and it was my understanding that Kubrick was okay with the the version of the movie where those three soldiers get saved before they are killed, and Kirk Douglas was more adamant that that stays the way that it is. And I yeah. think that is such an <laughs> important part of why this movie uh, is as unique as it is for sure and Kubrick's reasoning was you know he's 29 he needs a movie to be successful the killing doesn't exactly have the the most upbeat ending I don't know if it was financially successful but um you know you don't I guess maybe you don't want to get the the stamp of making every movie pretty dour um you know not that he was known for a bunch of rom-coms later in his career but uh but, but once he's established yeah exactly he's not a name at this point he's just the guy who made the killing you know he's he's yeah. not stanley kubrick and won't be for some time yeah so i i do want to talk about that sequence of the execution but maybe we can start at the the beginning and go a bit more chronologically yeah for sure <laughs> you already mentioned meeting him with no shirt on so we've covered that <laughs> yeah well you know and he gets a, a third of the budget by seemingly all accounts you know there's lots of <laughs> Lots of movie star vanity and something where the 
Um, just to put a button on the little Kirk Douglas thing, something that's very 1950s is when he's yelling about uh, to Brulard about how he's a degenerate, you know, like uh, he gets his, his Ruffalo and spotlight moment pounding on the table, um, just screaming about uh, the things that matter to him, you know, and yeah. uh, and that's I like it. Though. Oh, it, it works because Kirk Douglas is great, you know, and yeah. Um, of all the movie stars for there to have been two of them because Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas are essentially the same actor when I watch them <laughs> and I love them both. Like we, I'm, I'm so happy uh, that that was the one who, that was the movie star we chose to be replicated. But um, uh, yeah, so the beginning is, um, well, so it starts with the voiceover, you know, and I think I want to know what your thoughts are on the voiceover because I think it's so important to setting up the movie because Somebody like me who I think I have more historical knowledge than most people, but less than a history buff, you know, like I'm not I'm maybe going one for five on a Jeopardy category about World War One, you know, and at best Speaking my language now. Yeah, you. exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I know you come from a Jeopardy family. That's what I'm saying. Um, and but so especially now, something like that is really important for me to understand. But um, we've talked a lot about how. And specifically you um, about how voiceover can be a crutch. And I think that's something that historically can bother you more than it bothers me. Um, and I'm just curious to know what you thought about it. Yeah, I'm fine with it here. Um, I don't know if it's just because it's the newsreel thing. Um, you see it so often in the war movies and it really, I, I it just, it does some very quick heavy lifting as far as, exposition is concerned and getting right there um yeah and i don't know that it's as uh, so this is based on a true story you know it's definitely not a, a direct sort of documentary about what happened but um it is based on something i don't know that it's that important that it is or that it's world war one or world war two you know what i mean it, mm -hmm. it's you world war one does have um that that reputation of these this this trench warfare where you know as they say victories are looked at and sort of hundreds of yards gained over like a whole battle um so i i do think it makes sense that it's world war one just because so much of the theme of this is what people on the top are willing to do for <laughs> relatively very little but with no regard for the people below them mm -hmm. um so i i do think it's a good choice in that sense and the fact that it's based on something real i think works so the voiceover doesn't bother me um and yeah I, i'm kind of happy to get on with it and i think this is the very uh, efficient kubrick that quickly disappears yeah, you know yeah. what i mean yeah this is such a short tight movie um there are just characters who have some kind of important lines who we don't really learn anything about and uh, for kind of just the brevity of this is because this could be a bit more sprawling and I don't know that it would benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I think the important thing about the voiceover is that it doesn't come back, you know? It, it's there and then it never comes back to tell you how to feel, you know? It just tells you this is what's happening and sets the table for um, basically everything that, that happens. It's information you need, need to know, but it's not telling you how to think about that information. And oh, yeah, thing. yeah, for sure. And yeah. even not even the sort of PI kind of voiceover yeah, where exactly. we're constantly getting exposition and plot and reminders. Um, 
yeah, I, I'm 100% okay with this kind. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the, the things that's most um, striking pretty much immediately is the way that the chateau is shot. And it only becomes more so when... Um, when we get with in the trenches and and I think something that is really cool to me about this movie um and something that was probably pretty new in 1957 is the use of echo um in the audio where we're still relatively we're only two decades into sound being a thing in film you know like a, a people being able to speak on film and so um, the goal is still pretty much always to make it sound like every line is perfectly recorded in the sound studio. And most often half of the movie is redubbed, you know, um, because of how loud filming equipment is. And I think the the use of Echo in, in that first meeting um, between Moreau and Brulard is really interesting because it shows just how spacious this area is. And it comes back later in the Chateau for other reasons. But uh, that... Com- contrasted with the trench that we will soon be the trenches that we'll soon be spending a lot of time in where there's no no echo because there's no space for an echo you know because what creates an echo it's empty space and yeah that just does not exist in the trenches because you cram a thousand people into a ditch exactly a thousand people into a ditch and um not to mention the dirt that's just flying in and out and, and i just think the the echo the echoing in the conversation um is is kind of striking and sometimes it's louder and more pronounced than others and uh i just think the way it's used throughout the movie is really cool but it's one of the first things that really jumps out at me yeah and also just the fact that the chateau looks like a castle (laughs) yeah no i think that your point about the echo is a really good one and yeah that that idea of let's show off how good the sound technology is um versus <laughs> let's do something that could seem like we're not doing it on purpose, but there is an artistic reason behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is a good point. And even just when they're the constant bombing, that there's just that r- repeated sound. Um, and mm-hmm. sometimes it can make dialogue a bit harder to hear. And sometimes the sound itself is just so repetitive. And again, that strikes me as something that, uh, there is a more pleasing way to do that and, you know, have different sounds and space them out a bit more and not have them as repetitive. But I think that's also done deliberately of just that kind of droning repetition thing that I'm sure every soldier in the trenches was absolutely sick of, but just something to replicate that experience even just a little bit for the viewer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And the, the, I guess to talk about the characterization of Moreau and Brulard, um, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of like, it's almost hard to discuss because the movie kind of does so much of it already. Like they're pretty strongly characterized as um, villainous people high up in an organization, you know? Quickly. Uh, yeah, very quickly. And the way that they're they're having their conversation and um, even the way that the uh, Moreau is saying, like, I kind of know where this is, or saying with a smirk, I kind of know where this is going and this is good for me. And all of those things I've said about the, the troops and how I care about the troops, my men and all that are about to be thrown out the window. But um, at the faint promise of a promotion. Exactly. And immediately after he said that this specific mission is basically impossible and there's no point. And also it should be noted that the thing that is happening in this movie, the 
taking the anthill seems pointless. Like it just seems like there's no, there's no reason to it beyond, I don't know. We should do something right. You know? And yeah, um, it, the choice of the name anthill, just something that sounds so small and insignificant and useless. Well, it's something small and insignificant and something that would be populated by creatures who we hate, you know, and you, you can, you are, and try and avoid as human beings. And, um, the fact that you contrast that with just the biggest house that's ever existed, right? And in the yeah. book, the anthill is referred to as the pimple. You know, it's just these these. It's named after things that you don't even want to be near. Really, you don't want them. Um, but yeah, let's get them. And um, it's not even just the 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 base idea that's stupid. It's when later on when they actually execute it they're just listing reasons why they shouldn't it's going to be sunny all day you know so they'll have clear visibility to shoot them down um doesn't seem like territory worth fighting for we covered that uh and they have to hold the land even if they get the anthill they have to hold it all day while waiting for cavalry it's just even if that's the plan maybe just don't do it that day you know maybe wait until the next day (laughs) you know like um they already have their living quarters they got the trenches but um all of that is is interesting setup whereas i think um neither of us is a war movie buff really but it you get a lot of uh discussion before you get any battle and you get a lot of discussion about what is going to happen and who is going to do it before we we even meet the people who are going to do it you know we we don't meet dax until after this has already happened you know and yeah. uh all of that is interesting and and just sort of subverting what I would assume a 1950s war movie is like. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll really say I like Brulard Adolphe Manjou. Yeah. Um, he is so villainous, but there's a certain distance between him and and uh, Maru's obviously villainous, and I think he comes off as a bit worse. I mean, as far as bombing your own people to try to get them out of the trench. Um, and just a bit kind of greasier. <laughs> He's just, uh, just well, and he has a Bond go. villain scar too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I I really like how I don't know. I found something very compelling about Burlard. You know, obviously a bad guy, all that kind of stuff. But being able to play a, a bad guy in an interesting way. Just there, there's some distance between him and everything else around him mm-hmm. that I found was I don't know, just really engaging. Yeah, no, I get that. They they both have to be engaging personalities because they're the first people we're really introduced to and they're going to carry a lot of the beginning of the movie and they're going to be present throughout. And, um, you know, Kirk Douglas is doing the, the heaviest lifting, but it's pretty important that those two stand on their own as well. Yeah, and they just have some dry scenes. You know, it's them in big open rooms and, <laughs> you know, these kind of... Well, they're Two literally doing small talk about the decoration of the room, you know, like it's it's yeah. uh, which is, you know, part of the point is just how insignificant they view what they're doing is like we have time for small talk, even though we're about to jump into the biggest of talk, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, things that are life and death, you know, and it's just that that they still think they they should go through the motions of talking about the decoration of an office. Yeah, for, for this very dangerous plan that they kind of both are aware they don't have enough time to plan. Yeah, exactly. Don't <laughs> so have enough yeah. time to plan. It's probably not going to work, all these things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and then we get, uh, and then we finally get Dax in the, in the, 
in the trenches, right? Yeah, and I love the way that Dax is introduced because we've talked a little bit about the um, the layout of where Moreau's office is and how they're talking about the decorations. And Moreau is about to talk about how Dax has decorated his, his little space as well, which is funny. Um, but I love that we are introduced to Dax washing up and he's washing up in this porcelain bowl that's got some sort of decorations around it. And it seems like something that belongs um, in the chateau, right? It's like this, this almost this discard from Moreau's world that Dax is using. And, you know, what's he doing? He's washing up despite the fact that he's living in dirt. What's the point of, of taking a shower when you're going to just step right back in the dirt, you know? And... Um, and he's just trying to, it's, it's a little on the nose, but he's trying to stay clean in a dirty world basically. And that's the, the characterization of Dax that we get throughout this movie is he is trying to remain comfortable with himself, um, throughout this movie. And that involves, uh, washing up despite the fact that you're about to be covered in dirty all over again within 30 seconds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he's still maintaining his role as a commanding officer you know he does all Mm -hmm. the things that a good commanding officer should do you you know he's he leads the charge and he um you know in the battlefield he leads the charge but then he worries about his men in private and tries to fight to give them (laughs) literally a fighting chance at survival um when they're not around and so he's kind of when he's the the lowest ranking person he's trying to to be part of that scene as well you know he for the most part speaks in an acceptable manner you can kind of get the sense that there's some intense rage bubbling up under him pretty much at all times but he he has enough decorum to to fit in when he's in the palace Mm -hmm. even though still somewhat seething um but then he has that leadership in you know when he's in the dirt when he's in the trenches um and i think that 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 sink, that one thing that kind of bridges both worlds. It, it looks out of place there. He looks out of place when he's in that other world, but he does just enough to kind of fit in, um, you know, at the top of the the one scene and the bottom of the other. For sure. And I think something that is, um, you know, not necessarily specific to Dax's character, more so Moreau, but the way that the anthill is seen um, throughout the movie the first time we see a look of the anthill right do you remember the shot where it's the camera is physically looking at the anthill and it pulls out and we're looking through this sort of um periscope and no no it's not a periscope we're seeing directly through the trench to the space the first time we see it and we pull out and there's a soldier there like a soldier who's basically like on watch or whatever and then yeah. ev- every subsequent time we see it because that's just us seeing the anthill. Um, every subsequent time we see it, we see it through Moreau's eyes, and Moreau is looking at it through a periscope. And he, even though he's in the trenches, he's still not looking at what they're actually taking um, without going through layers of uh, protection, basically. Oh, you know? yeah. There's still that distance. And yeah, for him not even to poke his head over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, pretty much everybody else who is in the trenches goes over the fence, at least. Well, except for the b team but the um you know all the characters that we meet including dax who leads the charge go over and and actually jump in and get in the shit and um and yeah moreau is just casually drinking cognac to celebrate the beginning of a battle that he probably knows isn't gonna go so well you know 
Yeah, and he's more toasting his imminent promotion. Yeah, than exactly. Any hope of them yeah. doing well. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a lot to say about the actual warfare stuff. Um, I think it sort of stands on its, or sort of almost self-explanatory. Like it's really well done. <laughs> you know, um, the the yeah. I, I I think I'll just sort of crystallize that idea that just juxtaposing those big open echoey scenes to with kind of two people in the room of them talking mm-hmm. versus the trench with you know it's it's dax or dax's pov and it's either one person sort of in focus or a hundred people are what you have to yeah. look at yeah and it's that idea that these two have each other they have uh th- these two in the the chateau and at the dances and um sort of every time we go back into that world which is so distinct um from the war sequences yeah. from the battle sequences uh yeah, we talked about the sound, just everybody's either cramped in. So as I said, you kind of have this feeling that you're all alone or you're just part of the masses. Yeah. And that's sort of the big visual distinction between those two. Um, and then the sound, obviously, just the the echo or silence versus constant pounding of artillery and men and, and just chaos, you know, injured people coming by and just no one paying them any mind or, you know, the the medics focusing on them but other people just kind of not having any any ability to worry about anything else at that time Mm -hmm. yeah um and it's not you know i I think maybe my favorite moment once um the more worry moments of this movie actually start is probably the conversation between those two men who are talking about how they want to die um or how they prefer to die and how the guy is going uh, the professor is going through this reasoning of um well it's we want to die quickly so we're not actually afraid of death we're afraid of getting hurt i think that little conversation between two characters we don't see before and we don't see again i think that adds a lot of depth to um like you said a movie that moves really fast and uh kind of has no fat to it but i think something like that is this really interesting moment of humanity um inside of just this horrific uh, exp- uh, just sort of this hor- horrific world, you know? And um, I think something like that adds a lot of depth and uh, another moment like that that doesn't come until much, much later is when um, the the people are about to go to the firing squad and the other sergeant or general or whatever his classification would be is um, telling the man who's crying at his feet below him that uh, this is the last decision you have the chance to make on earth, you know, and many of you, many of us will be joining you before this war is over. Like we don't know anything about that person who's saying those lines, but I think that adds more again, depth to the world. And again, I know this is based on world war one. It's, it's the real world, but um, I think in an 88 minute movie or however long this is, I think having those quick moments of depth is uh, really helpful. And, and I think does a lot. Yeah. yeah, that's just a very short little philosophical debate about the nature of death and the dread, like the dread of it, I think is, yeah, super tight. And as I said, you do have those moments where yeah. these characters you know nothing about. And, and one both, character that we do sorry. know. No, go ahead. I was just going to say both those moments seem like things that wouldn't happen in reality because they seem like things people in those positions would have no interest in talking about because they're too <laughs> too terrified. But in a movie, it's great. 
yeah 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 and another sort of just moment of humanity of um it's right before the one that you mentioned but when uh one of the the soldiers who's about to be executed says i haven't had one sexual thought since the court martial and it it just it's kind of a non sequitur you know it is so out of nowhere but there'd kind of be no explaining what that person's head is doing as they're hours away from their death or Mm -hmm. how you know what they've been thinking about on their very likely their last night alive for um the crime of not wanting to join this nearly like almost certainly suicidal attack so that's just a bit more sort of shading to a character that uh you get in a movie that doesn't spend a lot of time doing that just because there's not that much time for it for sure and i think of of the uh supporting characters in this movie there's something about him that um that it's just sort of more compelling than than I think anybody else. And just there's something more modern about his performance style and, and just sort of the way that he is working for an officer he doesn't respect. And that's something that we can all kind of identify with, not necessarily in, in the world of war, but just um, having had jobs. You know, nobody's worked for uh, exclusively for bosses that they like and respect. You know, that's, that's just not a thing. And um, yeah. I think the that sort of interplay between him and Roger, I believe his name is the superior. Um, I think that that's really interesting. And another very, very small comparatively uh, element of this movie. But again, I think it adds a lot and just his performance style, or maybe just the fact that he looks like Bill Paxton, like just seem makes him (laughs) seem more modern, but uh, um, I don't know. I think he adds a lot to the movie. Yeah. um, No, I think you're, you're right. And I think that Kubrick, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he really cares about war that much, which mm. is wild because you know he had, is very famous for some very well respected war movies like mm-hmm. this and Full Metal Jacket. Um, you know, these are, I mean, especially Full Metal Jacket. I think you told someone name five very well respected war movies. I think that's up there. Yeah. Um, but I want to read a quote of his. I don't know if you came across it when you're reading too, but says one of the attractions of a war or a crime story is that it provides an almost unique opportunity to contrast an individual or our contemporary society with a solid framework of accepted value which the audience becomes fully aware of and which can be used as a counterpoint to a human individual emotional situation further war acts as a kind of hothouse for forced quick breeding of attitudes and feelings attitudes crystallize and come out into the open Conflict is natural when it would be in a less critical situation have to be introduced almost as a contrivance and would thus appear forced or even worse, false. And that just came to mind when you were talking about, you know, us working for bosses that yeah. we don't care about. Um, you know, it, it just seems like throughout his career, he uses it not as a shortcut, but just as a certain, yeah, as he says, a framework for us mm-hmm. to put these ideas forward because uh you know dax was a was a lawyer in his other life his civilian life back home um and yeah it just seems like kubrick does this and that's we've seen war and crime stories there's a reason why that is what is so much on television and in movies i don't mm-hmm. know that it's a hundred percent people want to see the violence and want to see the gore but they just want to see these characters forced to assert their values and these kinds of situations just 
push these to the forefront with such high stakes and with such immediacy. Yeah, well, and I think that's also true of um, so many filmmakers who work in genre, things that we've talked about a number of times where, um, you know, you know what a whodunit is, so Knives Out can toy with your expectations for it. And um, I know that's a crime crime story as well. But uh, but yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And um, yeah, that Kubrick, he was onto something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, toying with, with the audience's expectations was something that was uh, a constant throughout most of Kubrick's career. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's just, it's fun to see that in this one because it's war, this the situation, you know, these guys on the front line, it's, there is this expectation that what you're doing is so dangerous. Yeah. But then they're put in a situation that is even by their standards just so uh, untenable. Yeah. And just to see middle management and shitty bosses at work when the stakes are, are so high is something that um, is just all over this movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so should we talk about the court martial? Do you think? Yeah, that's, sure. That's kind of the, the part of this movie that I feel like is the most... Um, when I'm furiously scribbling down notes, I feel like I got a lot, a lot in a short amount of time there. You know, um, we were talking a bit about the, the shitty management and um, just a quick bit that I love that Brulard doesn't even go to the court martial. Like that's so, uh, how or how he says yeah. like I'm, I don't need to be here. All these things and and just all of the 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 things that are quick throwaways that just show how stacked the deck is against um against Dax like the guy who's uh the lead of the judges I don't I don't again army, army terminology not one of my strengths but um <laughs> yeah, well the, the French army jargon from the 1910s I'll yeah. be forgiving you this time <laughs> yeah exactly um just the fact that he's like ah oh, there's all these formalities but whatever we don't need to do them and uh the fact that Dax isn't going to get to question his like has to fight to question a witness. Um, all of these things just sort of just add up to show you how, uh, how hopeless it is and how you kind of probably assumed it was already hopeless, but very quickly, they're just constantly reminding you that, Nope, they're going to die. They're definitely going to die. Yeah. And no stenographer, you know, even if you couldn't, obviously you can't bring these people back from the dead after this thing's already happened and the dust has settled on the war and it's, you know, 1920 and people want to look through these documents. They're just not even going to exist. Like there's, even though it would be too late to do anything about it, um, it's just happening in this, in this other world that is totally uh, separate from any kind of justice or the legal system that's been determined to be most effective, which I mean, I think I would people would agree has its own problems those institutions but this just exists in an entirely different realm and that that there will be no record of how this went down yeah for sure and yes it's uh it's all setting the table for what's to come pretty quickly and i think something that um visually the main visual idea of the way this is shot and it's not true in in its entirety but for the majority of this court-martial scene people who have some sort of power and i'm including dax in that um, are shot in isolated close-ups primarily. Um, again, there are there are exceptions, like when the prosecutor is talking to Joseph Turkle's character um, and standing right next to him, or we get a three-shot of Moreau and his two supporters. Um, but for the most part, it's 
close-ups of these people individually. And for the people who are on trial, it's mostly that a close-up, but with a very deep focus behind it so we can see the other the other two people. You, I'm sure you can picture one of the shots I'm talking about where their face is directly in the camera, but we can still yeah. see the all the people behind them. And um, that includes the two other people who are on trial and then also the other faceless soldiers who are there just to, to guard over them to make sure they don't run away. And um, I think that's a real strong separation of uh, rank um, that's done visually and done continually. And I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And those... If I'm picking a shot that that really jumps out at me as not being 1957, aside from those very famous tracking shots that happened in the trenches that were probably so goddamn difficult to do back then, um, it, it's those shots of the uh, the accused with their their face right in right in frame, just looking so close to the camera physically. It's it's a really interesting and really jarring shot, but. Um, it's interesting, and then the the other thing that I I enjoyed is the way that um, this is most notable in the prosecutor, the way that he is shot, where the camera is behind the judges, right, and shooting from a low lowish angle, and it almost implicates us as the audience as one of these judges, like we're we're a part of this, and it's not giving us, um, it's not like saying we're at fault but it's also saying like we are just passive viewers in this moment that that are just just here to watch these shenanigans unfold you know um yeah and we can't do anything about it and and i think that that was a really interesting choice and those shots are just really gorgeous <laughs> and that's the other part of it that again uh, very very modern stuff but i think that's um that's a really interesting choice to sort of for the majority of this scene, um, the camera, when we're looking at the, that prosecutor and also Dax, a lot of it is framed from, um, or the, the, I would say the vast majority of it is framed from behind where the judges sit. And there are times where we have to flip to get a shot of that lead judge. Um, but primarily we're, we're behind that desk and, uh, and that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I saw this. Very happy to see that uh, this was a inspiration for the wire or an influence for the wire. Did you oh, see yes. that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that the the best stuff, <laughs> including wire, the best stuff about <laughs> um, <laughs> about institutions and uh, these stories of kind of the the underdog fighting against. You, you know the the larger larger society i think it's a great trick when they make us feel like we're part of the problem yeah. you know it, it, if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem i think it's that kind of indictment of the the passive viewers of anybody who's not you know trying to change things who is just going along with it and, and you may not be the people ordering the court martial you may not be the people uh, pulling the trigger but just implicating you as any part of this gigantic uh if, if you're passive to it if, if you're just ignoring it if you're aware of it and accepting it um then you know you're you're pretty guilty as well and i think that you know just thinking about this in terms of the wire we see a lot of institution middle management um people taking stands and acting rationally in their self-interest suffering for it and things not changing and i think that's what happens in this movie um 
Dax takes a stand. He, he kind of does everything within his power. Uh, the people die, and he doesn't get a promotion, but he's not fired. And, he, you know, we, we're kind of back to where we started musically, uh, his, his position, all, all of these things. Um, there's just so much turmoil and then death of innocent people, and we kind of come full, full circle. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, uh, speaking about The Wire on the Criterion Blu-ray, there's a really good 15-minute interview with David Simon about Paths of Glory and how it influenced, um, in some, and a lot of it is just about Paths of Glory and then parts of it are about specifically how it influenced The Wire. It's very interesting. Um, ah, cool. Yeah. And um, it's on the Criterion website as well for anybody who's interested, um, for all of our listeners who are taking notes. Um, <laughs> the uh, Just going back to the camera placement and the court martial, the um, the one thing I, I forgot to mention is when we flip around to that shot where we're looking at the judge and the the um, angle is a bit obscured by a human body standing in the way, either the accused or the prosecutor, you can't really tell. Um, that is shot from one of the other accused who would be seated, one of their eye lines. And I think that's that's kind of interesting that pretty much for this entire scene, we're seeing it from an angle that is conceivable for one of the humans on either side of that line in the room, you know, and um, and this becomes even more apparent when uh, Dax is giving his his big speech. And, um, you know, we talked about the echo earlier, you know, the shot where I'm talking about where it's tracking from side to side following Dax as he's giving this big speech. And we can sort of yeah. see him in a full body shot. And it's a gorgeous shot. Um, another on the long list of things that were probably pretty looked pretty amazing in 1957 given that they still look amazing in 2021 um but uh you know he's giving giving his big speech and it's just it feels so far away like the way that he sounds is so it feels like the 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 quietest he can be while speaking so loudly and the loudest that the echo feels in the whole movie and the camera is just tracking side to side with him. And we're from, again, we're behind the soldiers. We're tracking past the the chairs, but we're from the position of somebody who would be lower in the ranks. Um, and you can, it, it just makes you feel so removed from the process um, and makes you feel so hopeless, even though as a viewer, chances are, if you're watching this movie, you're by this point pretty much agreeing with what Dax is saying unless you're a horrible person you know yeah. and um and that, I just thought that was a really interesting way to really drive home just how how much what Dax is saying is falling on deaf ears and um it that goes on for a long time and then we only get a really clear close-up of him when he turns directly to like explicitly address the court you know and that's when we can hear him clearly but by then there's just been too much time of him being tuned out in that previous shot that like, even when it's Kirk Douglas giving you a hundred percent of the Kirk Douglas experience, <laughs> um, just sticking that jaw out right in your face. It's uh, you're already out, you're tuned out, you know, like it's too, too yeah. late. And yeah, I just you think can that's tell really his conviction. Cool. You can tell his conviction hasn't wavered really, but it does seem inevitable that <laughs> these men are going to die. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, just all around, like when I think of Kubrick, the, you know, like the quote unquote, the legend Kubrick, that the way that the court martial scene is shot is where I really, really see, see that sort of precision and ideas behind why the camera does what it does in every shot. 
Right. And yeah. of course, like realistically, I'm making up half of them and they just happen to scan with the movie, you know, because that's kind of always how it is. You know, he, he did it this way because there was a pole uh, three feet to the left, you know, but uh, yeah, but that's that's how it goes. <laughs> Watch room 237 for more on this. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk about the execution sequence? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I don't have a lot of notes. I think it's uh, another really well done um, sequence. Uh, I think the, again, to continue talking about the perspective that I've sort of been discussing, we get a lot of um, shots from the perspective of the soldiers marching to their death. Uh, the one of the photo being taken, um, or the photographer, you you mentioned how there's no records of the trial. They got a keep a record of this in some capacity for whatever reason. And um, the one that really sticks out is, is the Kirk Douglas shot, the one where he's essentially breaking the fourth wall, staring directly in the camera. And um, he just looks so stern and you know, he's looking at people who are about to die, who he knows shouldn't be about to die and wishes he could have helped. But he, he's just looking with such a visceral anger Um and but the anger is directed at you, but not really directed at you. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It's it's for the people who are above, and uh, I don't know. That's that that shot is just uh, I don't know. It cuts pretty deep. I don't know. It works. Yeah, yeah. At the a movie star doing his movie star thing too, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and the the other thing that really jumps out to me at the execution is the hard cut to the breakfast immediately after they're shot that's the moment where i'm just like oh boy um you know just dab and dab and jam on a croissant immediately after these these men have been murdered um and the something that has been pointed out to me as uh one of the more revolutionary things in this is sort of audio overlap where um that is something where it's that's a moment where it's more pronounced where you can still hear a bit of the finishing echo of the gunshots when we're already in the breakfast sequence, you know, which was probably difficult to do with soundtracks at the time. And that's something that would become very, um, it happens constantly in any movie you watch now. I mean, we talked about Unbreakable a couple episodes ago and I pointed out how the sequence where uh, Mr. Glass falls and ends up at the bottom of the steps in the subway fades into the bus that, um, that David Dunn gets off of in the next scene, you know, like that just happens all the time because now it's easy to do. But at the time it wasn't something that happened. And um, my understanding is there's more of it throughout uh, Paths of Glory that would jump out to me if I knew more about these things. But uh, that's one where without having known about overlapping audio, I was like, that seems new for 1957. And, (laughs) and it is since it's such a stark moment, you're going from the loudest thing in the world to the quietest thing in the world, you know? Um, it's it's really stark and just the it's it's just upsetting <laughs> you know i, like, yeah, I, I, know. I love I, croissants I, and uh <laughs> it's such a bummer for me yeah really smiling face and then yeah it, the it's i think the the sound of the gun echo and the sound of these bodies slumping over of these innocent men dying um you know who fought to avoid their death to just have it stretched out you know and that uh keeping in mind that sort of philosophical discussion we we're talking about it's not the death that they worry about it's the pain they had this mental anguish of just worrying about their death for a night and then being killed mm-hmm. and um 
as that sound is still echoing in this next scene, they're saying, you know, they died quite nicely. Oh, or yeah, yeah. They died fun. wonderfully or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just just that 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 quick transition and into the way that these two people who are one of these men who already essentially tried to kill these people um directly yeah you know uh talking about how nicely they died and uh how great their food is and stuff is just it it it, it achieves what kubrick's intending there when you just get very upset at these people yeah absolutely and then how the whole conversation the way that it's orchestrated by brulard even after dax is in there um it basically is just orchestrated like a business meeting where it's like oh you told me this about our business partner and so that means i'm going to do this and you're getting a promotion and oh what do you mean this is weird what do you mean <laughs> you know like the, yeah. just the whole way that 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 all plays out um and just the the absolute uh gap between how dax thinks and how brulard thinks and um and how moreau thinks you know because that's where we get those real lines where characters really state who they are you know there's a line for each of those three characters in that scene like moreau on his way out um who uh one quick note about moreau i love the idea that uh somebody um suggests that the accused could have given himself a self-inflicted wound to get get himself out of an issue i love that it's never addressed that maybe moreau could have done the exact same thing um with his scar i know it's a pretty dramatic scar so <laughs> you have to be yeah. pretty pretty committed but i i do enjoy that as sort of a, a um just a thought but uh the way that he says as he's walking out in that in his last scene you're making me the goat even though I'm the only completely innocent man in this whole affair, <laughs> which is a wild thing to say. And then just the the conversation between, um, the ensuing conversation between Dax and uh, Brulard that ends with Brulard saying, you bring charges against General Moreau, or Moreau so I insist that he answer them. Where have I done wrong? And uh, Dax says, because you don't know the, an- because you don't know the answer to that question, I pity you, which is just very, all three of those characters are summed up pretty um, yeah. clearly in that two of them can't think like human beings can and Dax is sort of our our surrogate you know he's there for us and um, and we feel you know maybe 5% of the anger that Dax feels but um, just yeah. because it would just be so much more visceral in the actual situation but uh, but yeah he's there for us to, to follow him yeah yeah, and I think what I like about Brulard is, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, and I think the scene is what is the best example of it, is he's smart. You know, I, I do believe that this character is a smart person. Yeah. Um, but the genuine surprise that when people react the way that they for sure would react in this situation, he seems not surprised by because he's not even that engaged in anybody else's life to be surprised um but just that he's so distant from people's emotions and that's not just the way he feels about people dying or sorry i should say doesn't care about people dying um but the way you know if he's impugning someone's (laughs) manner or uh intelligence or morality that he seems so far away from their reactions from it. You know, Moreau's really putting on a scene here and Brulard's very, uh, very unaffected by it. And even with Dax, um, you know, Brulard does kind of get emotional a little bit, but that idea that his, 
I know he's so separate from humanity that not only is he willing to waste it over nothing, that he's so surprised when people do have any sort of genuine reaction to what's going on to them. Exactly. Like his experience, his life experience is nothing like Dax's and vice versa. So they can't understand each other because they live totally different existences, even though they're both operating within the same institution, right? Like when the people who are going to be executed are spending their last night eating possibly drugged duck. Um, it, we're getting cuts to Brulard literally dancing. You know, he's he's yeah. at at a party, and and it's just the, these are two different worlds that um, technically are under the same umbrella. But Brulard doesn't understand um, what it's like to be a soldier um, anymore. Who knows his history? Maybe he did at one point, but he's just been removed for so long that he doesn't anymore um whereas dax at least seems to have one foot in on each side of the line and um can still or maybe just i guess he's got both feet on the regular person's side because he can't really understand where brulard is coming from um so it's just that sort of if you live a certain existence for long enough, you, you lose track of how regular human beings live i think you know kirk douglas's own stardom is a good good uh real life example of that where you know kirk douglas probably doesn't understand what it's like to uh to live a normal human life by this point you know he's been famous for long enough and all of that um so he probably loses track of some elements of being a human uh those don't show up in this movie that's for sure true he still feels to uh still feels like a human at this point but i don't know his career well enough maybe he's got something where you sort of lose track um, like it happens with so many extremely famous celebrities. But um, yeah, if you live in a certain kind of world for long enough, you lose track of the kind of world that you used to live in. And that's exactly what happens to Brillard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about the ending? Uh, sure. So I think the the thing that we haven't really discussed, we've talked a little bit about the use of sound and the echo and everything, but the use of music um, in this movie to me is kind of interesting or not kind of interesting it is interesting but, but the there aren't a lot of instances of music um and i believe there are ex- only three points where there's um non-diegetic music and it's the very beginning you know we get that sort of military march over the the newsreel or under the newsreel voiceover we get very brief uh sort of marching drums and a transition back to the chateau and uh until the ending everything else is is just any other music we hear you know we hear some drums during the execution sequence but it's because there are drummers present we hear a little bit of music while there are people are dancing but it's because there are musicians at the party all of these things and then we get to hear this woman uh singing and it's really interesting the way that the movie um one her voice sort of shuts up all of these rowdy people who are having maybe one last uh, bit of enjoyment for the rest of their lives. Like they might not enjoy anything ever again. Um, So they're just sort of trying to get all of their positive energy out, I guess, at this bar or performance hall or whatever you would call it. And um, the way that she shuts them up, they all start singing together. Um, I think it's notable that she is uh, German and they're French um, and they're still, still singing together. And they're just sort of having this moment of, being connected um and they're being connected through diegetic music you know it's it's their voices singing and dax is watching this and he knows they have to go back to the line so he wants to let them have a few more minutes um of this 
not horrible experience inside of a horrible experience. And what takes takes us out of the movie is Dax going back into his office and that sort of military march type of music starts over the singing and it drowns out the human voices and it's just it's just this repetitive march sound that seems like it can't be stopped because that's probably what it feels like to be inside of a war and um they're getting this very brief respite and they're probably all gonna die later that day you know or later that week whatever um but i think the way that music is only used basically to just remind you just how unstoppable everything is and how um how impossible it is to defeat the things that are standing in the way of people like Dax and uh, those soldiers. I think it's uh, it's really important, or sorry, really uh, really powerful. I guess would be the strong word. You know. Yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're 100 right, and I think it's important that when she starts singing, she's clearly not even on the soundtrack at all. You know, yeah. there's there's nothing coming through. She's very, um, you know, she's literally voiceless, but just the the human and the universality of the song she's singing and um what a horrible position you can tell she's in oh, and yeah. it get it, it gets it just gets through to them even though there is this language barrier there's something as i said just so universal about her obvious uh discomfort suffering uh concern about her bodily welfare in the immediate future mm-hmm. that all of these men also relate to so that's that's how they all get onto the same page and that's what dax is looking at yeah absolutely and uh he knows they're all gonna die and so he lets them have a couple more minutes so yep um all right well going out on a real downer like this movie does uh <laughs> thanks, yep. for, thanks for listening to the mcguffman and uh check back next time mm-hmm.